Not long after the church began, influential people, even in Jesus' hometown in Palestine, began corrupting the gospel with false teaching that caused some people to fall away from the faith and others to begin to doubt the faith. So Jesus' brother Jude wrote a letter to the church in his hometown, Palestine, exhorting them to, quote, contend for the faith. And the bulk of the letter that he writes from verse 5 all the way down to 25, Jude gives four perspectives that give motivation and instruction on contending for the faith. Our sermon text this morning is verse 5 through 10, where Jude provides the first perspective. And in essence, Jude says, contend with this perspective, contend in light of the judgment that awaits these false teachers. Contend in light of the judgment that awaits these false teachers. So let's read our sermon text, Jude, verse 5 through 10. And uh, we're actually going to back up just a little bit and get some of the context. So let's start in verse 3. This is God's word. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Verse 8, Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. That'll end our reading of God's Word for now. We'll continue that rest of it in the coming weeks. But I want you to notice the flow of the text here this morning. In order to contend for the faith, Jude says that it's important for the church to remember something. Do you see that in verse 5a? Remembering the past gives you the right perspective for the present and the future. In order to contend for the faith, it's important that we remember two things. First of all, Jesus judged the wicked in the past. Then he gives three examples of that judgment. Example number one, Israel. Number two, angels. And number three, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's in verse 5 through 7. 
And then, just like Jesus judged the wicked in the past, verse 8 through 10, he applies that to these people. Jesus will judge these false teachers in the future. That's verse 8 through 10. In verse 8, he shows their rebellion. Verse 9, their arrogance. Verse 10, their destruction. So the big point that Jude is making here, which is the big point of my sermon and my prayer for you, is that we are to contend for the faith in light of the fact that Jesus will judge all false teachers in the future just as he judged the wicked in the past. So Jude reminds us of this perspective because he wants us to see three important things in this text. This is going to be the structure of my sermon this morning. Jude wants us to see three important things, so he gives us his perspective. And he wants us to see these important things because they might not be so clear to us just like they weren't so clear to them. Friends, what we're going to talk about today is not clear to most Christians because we live in the fog of the American culture. And it's not just Western, modern America, but it is the fog of the human culture that existed even in Palestine in that day. So Jude wants to give us a perspective so that we'll see three very, very important things. The first one is this. Jude wants us to see Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. Jude wants us to see his older brother Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. It's interesting that Jude speaks about Jesus as the one. Did you notice that in verse 5? Now I want you to remind, to remind you that Jesus is the one who did what? Saved the people out of the land of Egypt and then afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Isn't that interesting? When you read the book of Exodus and you read about the nation of Israel being delivered from Egypt. Who do you ascribe that deliverance to? Most of us think God the Father. But Jude says it was Jesus who delivered Israel from Egypt. And then when Israel was going around in the wilderness, it was Jesus who exacted justice and judgment on those who did not believe, even among those in Israel. The reason that Jude wants to show us this is because this is not the typical view of Jesus, is it? It's not just that we associate judgment with the Father, but all too often Jesus is the gentle, meek, mild Savior. He's the He's, he's the social worker. He's the, uh, the role model. He's the wise teacher. But Jude wants to emphasize the cosmic authority of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 4, where, Jesus, uh, where Jude says that he is our, quote, only master and Lord. Jude is holding Jesus up as the one and only master of all of creation. And then here, he wants to show us that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. See, Jesus is not just a role model or a wise teacher or a social worker that we see wandering around doing good in Palestine. The Bible shows Jesus to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Bible describes Jesus as a warrior king. And here Jude emphasizes Jesus as the judge 
of the living and the dead. Well, Jesus said this about himself in John chapter 5 that Alan read for us a little bit earlier. Jesus says in John 5, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says, all judgment has been given to me, the Son of God. And this is not the only place. Did you know that this was a reoccurring theme as the early disciples preached Jesus? Acts chapter 10, in a sermon, God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus is the judge. A couple of chapters later, Acts chapter 17, Paul was preaching on Mars Hill, and Paul said this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by all by raising him from the dead. God's going to judge the world, the living and the dead, through a man, and he tells us who that man is, the one whom he has raised from the dead. Friends, I wonder if you see Jesus this way. Is this your view of Jesus Christ, or, or do you have him as the meek and mild miracle worker of Palestine? Oh, he is a miracle worker. But he is the cosmic judge before whom we will all stand. When we read the, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John the Apostle, it's the Lamb who is on the throne judging the nations. And I'll tell you, the way that we can see whether we have this perspective of Jesus is whether we have submitted our life to him. So my question is your life aligned under the cosmic authority of the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ? That's the first thing that Jude wants us to see. The second thing that Jude wants us to see is in opposition, in contrast to Jesus, Jude wants us to see false teachers and their false teaching as rebellion against Jesus. So when Jude thinks about the false teachers in the church at Palestine, Jude sees them as in rebellion against the cosmic authority of Jesus Christ. <laughs> to make this point, Jude does two things. First of all, he reminds the church of three examples of how Jesus has judged the wicked in the past. And then he shows how Jesus is going to judge these wicked people in the present and in the future. So let's take a look at those. And, and this will take just a little bit of time. It's very important. This perspective is very important for us because, frankly, we do not see other religions as rebellion against Jesus. In our society, we often see them as cultural traditions, personal preferences, alternative lifestyles, but not rebellion against the cosmic authority of Jesus Christ. Let's take some time to understand this perspective. Jude reminds the church of three examples of Jesus judging the wicked in the past. 
First of all, in verse 5. Example number one, Israel. Jesus destroyed those in Israel who did not believe. That's harsh language, but it's true. So who are these people? Well, the emphasis here is on those people who were in quite the privileged position. They were part of the nation of Israel, the biological children of Abraham. And in their privileged position among God's people, they differentiated themselves and separated themselves through rebellion and unbelief. These are those in Numbers 14 who had been delivered from bondage in Egypt, but now in their freedom were not grateful to God. But in Numbers 14, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe me? In spite of all of the signs that I have done for them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Well, Moses pleaded with God, please, don't do that. And he rehearsed back to God the promises of his covenant and his attributes saying back to God, Lord, you are the one who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and forgiving iniquity and transgression. And so the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and said to them, this is still reading Numbers 14, say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one of them will come into the land that I swore that I would make for you to dwell except for Caleb and Joshua. You see, these people were connected with Israel. They were delivered physically along with Israel out of Egypt into the promise of God. But what we understand is that not all of Israel is Israel. You see, this is one of those teachings where we understand that being connected to God's people, being part of the church, going to church, being a religious person, growing up in a Christian home is no guarantee of salvation. Here we have a group of people who were in a privileged position physically, externally, they looked like everyone else, but on the inside, they rejected God and rebelled against God. Romans chapter 9 says, Not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are the children of Abraham because they're his offspring. That means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. In other words, the only way you can be a child of God is by faith. Because a Jew and a Christian is not one outwardly, but only one inwardly because it's a matter of the heart. So this first example is the emphasis on Jesus judging those who were externally part of God's people but internally rebellious. Doesn't that sound like the false teachers in the church? Externally part of the church friends with all of the people there, but internally completely different. They had no heart for God. And Jude later says they were devoid of the Spirit of God because they rebelled and rejected the authority of Jesus. Example number two. Similarly, another group of those who were privileged among the larger group. Look in verse six. 
Jude's second uh, example is of angels. It says in, in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay, key words, did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Example number two is that Jesus has incarcerated the angels who did not stay within their position of authority. The emphasis here, just like Israel, is that these angels were part of all of the angels. What more privileged position is there in all of the universe than to be an angel in the very presence of God? And yet they did not stay in their position of authority. They left. Two verbs. They didn't stay. They left their proper dwelling. Now, what is this referring to? Well, honestly, we can't be 100% sure. That might surprise some of you. Because the traditional interpretation of this is so well known. But we actually cannot be 100% sure because this is not necessarily um, the retelling of a specific story. But it is the most common interpretation that both the Jews and the church has of Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. In Genesis 6 the, quote, sons of God, which we take to be angels, the sons of God left their position and cohabitated with the daughters of man. So there's the differentiation between the sons of God and the daughters of man. That's why we think that the sons of God are the angels and the daughters of man are the human women. And it says there in Genesis chapter 6, you can read it later, that the, the sons of God somehow cohabitated with the daughters of men and produced a race of giants, which ended up being part of why God destroyed the earth with the flood. Peter quotes Jude extensively in his second letter. Second Peter chapter 2 says the same thing. He talks about the angels who sinned in the context of the ancient world and the judgment that came down on the world through Noah. So I feel very comfortable that this is a proper interpretation, but I hold it loosely enough that when I get to heaven, if God says, no, that's not what that was, I'd be okay with that. Regardless. Jude's point in using this as an example is that he describes the judgment on the fallen angels. Those who were in such a privileged position who left that position, their judgment is eternal. It's confined in chains. It's in gloomy darkness. And it is waiting until, quote, that great day. That is exactly what Jude is going, is saying is going to happen to these false teachers. Because they're not who they seem to be, staying in their position, they also are going to experience the day, the great day of judgment that will result in a terrible, terrible judgment for all of eternity. Example number three. So far we've seen Israel, angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah now. Example number three. All of these to say that the same Jesus who judged the wicked in the past is the same Jesus who is going to judge these false teachers. Why? Because false teachers and false teaching is direct rebellion against our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and dead. Example number three, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I'm not able to say that these are those who are in a privileged position, who left that position. 
But I think that Jude uses this example because it matches the same kind of rebellion that we understand to be the rebellion of the false teachers. Do you remember that they perverted the grace of God into sensuality, into a license to express their human sexuality however they preferred, rather than staying in the confines and the guidelines of God's law. So he uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and shows us that Jesus not only destroyed the unbelieving in Israel and incarcerated the fallen angels, but Jesus is the one who punished Sodom and Gomorrah, who indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Look there in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, underline this next phrase, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. They are an example of what happens to false teachers and all who follow false religion. Friends, this is some serious stuff. We need this perspective. We we don't think about other religions this way. Here, you could go back to Genesis chapter 19, read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We won't have time to do that this morning, but I thought it was interesting. It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's all the cities that were around it, and I verified that week. Uh, that this week. You can go back in Genesis 19 and you'll see that it says, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. What was their sin? Two verbs are used that express relentless self-gratification. First of all, they indulged. What's the picture that you think of when you think of indulging in something? Whatever it is, it's self-gratifying, isn't it? It's like, give me more, give me more. I, I love it. I want it. What did they indulge in? According to the Bible here, sexual immorality. And even more, they pursued something. What's the mental image that you get when you think of pursuing something? You're chasing it down. You're running after it. It's relentlessness. It's out of a desire to, to get it and to have it. What did they pursue? Unnatural desire. A desire that is unnatural, unbiblical, not the design of God. So what we see here is every form, not just one form, but every form of sexuality outside of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. Every form is indulging sexual immorality and even pursuing unnatural desires. The result... They serve as an example of awful judgment. Look, the, the, the judgment is called punishment and eternal and fire. Friends, I would love for hell to, 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 to be a, a metaphor. But the Bible speaks about hell as a burning fire forever. Too many times for it to be a metaphor. Friends, this is serious stuff. When we rebel against the cosmic authority of Jesus, we will be judged just like those who were in Israel in their unbelief, the fallen angels who did not stay in their position in Sodom and Gomorrah. These examples all show that false teachers are going to be judged as well. Look in verse 8. In verse 8, Jude shows that these false teachers 
are just like the three examples and assures the church that Jesus will judge them in the future. Verse 8, yet in like manner these people also. You could circle several words there. In like manner. Just like what the three examples that I just gave you or also. These people who are infiltrating the church and undermining the faith causing some to fall away and others to doubt, they will be judged. Look at verse 11. This will be our next text. Verse 11. Woe to them. Woe. The pronunciation of judgment. Look at verse 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to do what? Verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude wants to remind us of the past so that the church will be assured that Jesus will judge these false teachers in the future. So what does he do? He exposes their rebellion in verse 8. How are these false teachers like Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah? Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, three things, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, as I look at my time, I see that I have already gone 31 minutes, which means I only have another 30 minutes to go. I'm kidding. But to explore that significantly, will take a long time, more time than I have here this morning. So let's let's give it our best shot to help us to understand the indictments against these false teachers. Well, first of all, notice that as a prelude to these three indictments, these three offenses, Jude says that the reason or basis for their rebellion is that they're relying on dreams. Remember that these people came into the church and, and uh, announced that they had had dreams where God gave them new revelation. And that new revelation was contrary to what Peter, Paul, James, John, and the rest of the apostles had taught them. And maybe even if it wasn't so black and white contrary, it defined things. So yes, they talked about the grace of God, but God told me in a dream that we are free now. We're free to enjoy life, whatever comes naturally. That means that if I naturally desire X, Y, or Z, then that's how God made me. And we know that this had a sexual bent to it. Friends, doesn't that sound like our culture? So these relying on their dreams, this new revelation they do three things. Number one, they defile the flesh. We've seen this in verse four. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality, which throughout the letter is identified as a license for sexual immorality. Number two, they reject authority. The authority of verse four, Jesus, who is the only master and Lord. And and number three, they blaspheme the glorious ones. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Wow. So I know what it means to blaspheme, right? That's to say something against or to slander. So who are these glorious ones? Well, it's ambiguous. And it could just mean they speak against that which is glorious or those who are glorious. But most scholars agree, and, and I agree with them, that it's referring to angels. And the reason that I agree with that, that, that the glorious ones that these false teachers are blaspheming, uh, Jude just used an example of fallen angels. 
Number two, next in verse 9, Jews uses the example of Michael the archangel. Number three, 2 Peter 2, Peter quotes this and identifies these as angels. And number four, the Jews often spoke of angels as the glorious ones who delivered God's law. And that's not just a Jewish interpretation, friends. That's Acts, Galatians, and Hebrews. The angels were the glorious ones who participated in God delivering the law on the mountain to his people. So these who defile the flesh, reject the authority, and blaspheme the angels who delivered God's law means that these people, the heretics, are speaking against not only God's law, but against the very holy angels, the glorious angels who helped deliver it. They stand in opposition to God's law and to the angelic band and to the authority of Christ. In verse 9, Jude exposes their arrogance about this. By the way, he called them loudmouth boasters in verse 16. That gives you a sense of, of who they are, what they were like. But here he talks about their arrogance and their blasphemy. Notice that the word blasphemy goes from verse 8 to verse 9 to verse 10. He really keys on this blasphemy because it's their verbal speaking against God's law that is undermining the gospel. Look at verse 9. He gives an example. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So whereas these false teachers are loudmouth and boasting in their blasphemy, he gives an example in contrast. And he chooses an angel, a very powerful angel, in fact, the most powerful angel, Michael, the archangel, and shows how even Michael wasn't arrogant about his power. He didn't blaspheme, but he humbly said in an argument with the devil about the body of Moses, he humbly said, the Lord rebuke you. Instead of, I'm using my power and my authority to rebuke you. So verse 9 is a contrast between the arrogance of these false teachers and the humility of one who had the rightful power and authority, the archangel Michael. Now what's interesting about that is this is not an Old Testament story. (laughs) We don't know hardly anything more about Michael and Satan disputing over the body of Jesus? Is this a true story? Is it not a true story? Well, honestly, the the truth is it doesn't matter whether it is true or not because Jude here is using it as an example. And so he could just as likely be referring to Jewish apocrypha or a real story. So I, I do not know. Just for me as a Christian and as a teacher, I don't know for sure whether Michael and Lucifer, Satan, argued about the body of Moses. This is the only place, and then also in in, uh, 2 Peter, that it's talked about. Whether that's Jewish apocrypha or not, I don't know. But it doesn't matter. He's using it as an example of a well-known thing in in their society. And the point is to make a contrast between the false teacher's arrogance and the humility that they should be exhibiting. All right, we're getting down into the weeds. We need to uh, we need to come on back up here for air. Let's look at verse ten. Not only does he talk about their offenses and their arrogance, but he also talks about their destruction in verse ten. These people arrogantly blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed 
by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Did you read this this week in preparation? If you did, probably needed to slow down and try to untie some knots. Verse 10, Jude tells us four important things about the heretics. Look at these. Number one, they lack understanding, likely about God's grace and the gospel. They lack understanding. They do not understand. Number two, they blaspheme what they don't understand. They speak evil about, likely, the grace of God and the gospel. These people blaspheme all that they don't understand. Does this sound like some that you know who don't actually know much about the Bible but have all kinds of bad things to say about it? So they lack understanding and they speak evil of what they don't understand. Number three, they are governed by something. Look there in verse 10. What are they governed by? They're governed by their base instincts, their natural passions. They're, they're irrational like animals, Jude says. Just like unreasoning animals, what these people do is they follow their natural human instincts. What's Jude's view of natural human instincts? It's not good. It means that we're ruled by our passions and desires and appetites. Number four, that ends up destroying them. They are destroyed by their instincts. Look at the end of verse 10. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. What they understand destroys them. Put all of this together. Jude assures his readers that the same Jesus who judged wickedness in the past will judge these heretics in the future because he has given them the faith that was once delivered to all the saints, but relying on some new revelation that they got in a dream, they have defiled the flesh through sexual immorality, rejected the authority of Jesus as the only Master and Lord, and arrogantly blasphemed all that they don't understand, choosing instead to follow their basic human passions and appetites into sin. I said that what Jude wants to do here is this. Jude wants us to see that false teachers and false teaching is rebellion against Jesus. To say that following false religion is a rebellion against Jesus, or even worse, wait a minute, to say that following our natural human instincts is rebellion against Jesus? And that sounds pretty harsh, especially in our culture, doesn't it? See, our culture has a live and let live mentality. You do you. Who am I to say that your opinion or your lifestyle or, or your religion is wrong? Who, In fact, who am I to say that anything is wrong or right? Our culture thinks of religion as a personal preference, as cultural tradition. Our culture says this, all points of view are acceptable. They're even good. All points of, of view are good because they're part of the diversity that God has created so that life is beautiful. Friends, this is called religious pluralism. Religious pluralism. It's a, it's a theory that there's 
more than one acceptable kind of reality, that there are multiple sources of authority, and they should all be equal, and they should all coexist. You've seen the bumper sticker. Jude is a polemic against pluralism. Jude is a polemic against the American mentality about religion. Jude says, all religions do not claim the same authority. All religions have not been created by God to add color and spice to life. There is only one religion, quote, the faith once for all delivered to the saints through the master and only Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to have the perspective that all other forms of religion and even our base human instincts are rebellion against the cosmic authority of Jesus. This is a polemic against pluralism. And friends, the opposite of contending for the faith is not rejecting the faith completely. The opposite of contending for the faith is considering other religions as valid alternatives. We can't contend for the faith if we think that there are many acceptable faiths. So Jude wants us to see one thing finally. Just as he wanted us to see Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead, just as he wants us to see false teachers and false teaching, in fact, all other religions as rebellion against Jesus. Number three, Jude wants us to see contending for the faith is a negative and positive result of this perspective. Contending for the faith looks like this. Negatively, rejecting all religions and our natural, depraved human nature that is against the biblical law of God, rejecting it all because it leads to judgment and destruction. That's what contending for the faith looks like. It starts in your heart where you reject all other philosophies and believe there's only one exclusive faith, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the positive side, contending for the faith doesn't just look like rejecting, it looks like holding to the faith once delivered to the saints. Why? Because just like false religion only leads to destruction and judgment, only the gospel frees us from our natural human instincts and leads us to life. Only the gospel of Jesus can do that. And how does the gospel of Jesus do that? Through the miraculous work of God where he takes our sinful hearts, he he places all of our sin on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, pours out his wrath against sin, satisfies his judgment against sin, and then says all who will come to Jesus as the only master and Lord by faith, you will be free from condemnation and you will be given justification and life. Contending for the faith is rejecting what comes naturally and what our human minds come up with in religion and holding on to that which has been given to us 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, perpetuated through his apostles and his church in his word. Where does that leave us? As a church, if we're going to contend for the faith, Jude is going to talk to us about some attitudes, some people that we should engage in this. He's going to talk to us about that in the next three sessions. This is not all there is. But this this requires us to stay faithful. This requires us to not capitulate to to the culture that is around us, no matter how significant and strong those opinions might be, no matter how different we, whether in our culture, at our workplaces, or even in our own families, become. We've got to hold on to the faith delivered to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that will lead to life and justification. Friends, that's by faith. And it's by faith because there's no work that we could ever do. There's no faithfulness that we could ever conjure up. But we come to Jesus. You remember that song we sang earlier? Come, you sinners. Come to Jesus. I will arise and go to Jesus. And what do we find with him? Grace and mercy and love for those who will come. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you very much for... uh, for this message, this perspective that Jude has given to us today, and I pray, please, uh, help us to understand it. Help us to, to see the uh, authority of Jesus and, and to see his judgment against all rebellion and then to see his grace for those who will come to him by faith and the gospel. I pray, I pray that you would do the miracle of regeneration in, in the hearts and minds of, of those who hear this, uh, that they would consider uh, who you are and who they are and uh, the offer of salvation by faith and grace that you've made to us all by Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.